welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Paul Schwartz, research analyst at the Center for Naval Analysis, and Richard Weitz, the director of the Center for Political Military Analysis at the Hudson Institute. Richard and Paul are authors of uh, the two very new CSIS reports on Sino-Russian military cooperation. Paul wrote his paper on Russia's arms sales to China, and Richard focused on Sino-Russian military cooperation and exercises. In this episode, we discuss the strategic conundrum to the United States of greater Sino-Russian military cooperation. We examine the cost to Russia of this growing strategic partnership, uh, its purpose, and whether this is an alignment or an alliance. Let's get started. Again, thank you so much, Paul and Richard, uh, for joining us. I mean, I think this issue of Russian-Chinese military cooperation has really been at the forefront of the U.S. national security community. You know, some have argued it's a strategic conundrum. Some have argued it's a marriage of convenience. But we're starting to see conversation that's now talking about more durable alignment between Beijing and Moscow militarily. We're seeing the words like mutual aid uh, starting to, to, to come across uh, the the intellectual transom here. And so I thought this would be a really great opportunity uh, to pick both of your brains. You have just uh, released two two fantastic uh, papers that focus on Sino-Russian cooperation in military transfers, defense cooperation, as well as exercises. So I, I want to jump right in here. And Paul, I would be so grateful if you could just give us a really quick overview of the paper that you wrote about growing Sino-Russian military transfers, particularly after uh, the 2014 uh, crisis with with Ukraine. Again, we saw this is a relationship that has been building uh, really over decades, uh, but it really accelerated. So I'd love to turn to you uh, just for some some highlights on your paper. What are you seeing and what concerns you uh, about these developments? That's right, Heather. We have seen a growing defense transfer relationship emerging between Russia and China, post-Ukraine especially, and that's been driven geopolitically by the disruption in relations between Russia and the West, which uh, drove Russia to accelerate its pivot to Asia, uh, focusing especially on China. And this led to a resumption of large-scale arms and technology transfers between Russia and China, which had gone through about a decade-long lull in relations due to a number of concerns that had arisen between the two countries uh, over intellectual property, concerns over China's rising military power, and other factors. But starting in uh, 2015, the two sides announced two major new arms sales agreements for the transfer of Russian S-400 air defense systems and Su-35 combat aircraft. And that kick-started things. The total price for that package was around $5 billion. Following that, there have been a series of component sales of engines, and uh, most recently, a new arms sale of MI-177 helicopters uh, to China, uh, which has just taken place over the last year. 
At the same time, though, we are seeing a rise in technology arrangements, joint development projects in the areas of missile defense, and uh, recently announced a conventional submarine project. And this is part of a growing trend for um, defense cooperation between the two. We're seeing uh, China uh, shifting much more to uh, pushing for technology transfer arrangements to promote its growing self-sufficiency in defense production, and Russia reciprocating, so complementing arms sales with a growing convergence on technology transfers. And uh, this is having a meaningful effect on the, the military balance in the Western Pacific as China incorporates some of these new systems into its counter-intervention strategy. It's deploying these systems, uh, air defense systems, combat aircraft, and other systems that have been developed over the, the decades-long defense technology and arms transfer relationship between the two countries as well. This uh, relation is not without cost to Russia, however, because as it continues to transfer technology to China, uh, that's eroding its uh, technological lead over China in more and more areas. Chinese uh, intellectual property infringement continues, and uh, China is now emerging as a much more uh, vibrant player in the uh, global arms markets itself which is uh, threatening to cut into Russia's market share, especially at the lower end. So we've seen a, a number of interesting developments that in the, the arms transfer relations, which have really been put, uh, helping to cement their growing military convergence and enhancing their overall strategic partnership. Paul, thanks so much. I, I just want to dig a little deeper because in your paper, you really highlight where Russia has transferred technology and military capabilities to China. You mentioned uh, aircraft engines, the Su-35s, the, the submarine um, uh, components, long-range air defense, helicopters, um, uh, seeing the ballistic missile early warning systems. Is there a prioritization or a hierarchy of concern in that basket? Uh, because as you mentioned, I mean, uh, Russia is filling some critical gaps in, in China's uh, military capabilities. Uh, but I think what we're all struggling with and what your paper does a great job is trying to understand how the two are working together um, more comprehensively. And so I just wondered if you could prioritize or just highlight what you're most concerned and then how are you seeing uh, the, the military capabilities, that gap closing in China, but, but now you, you've got uh, really Russian of potential vulnerabilities uh, as they are transferring that military technology. Right. So I think the thing that is a, should be of most concern to the West is that this is just as true now as it has been since the uh, end of the Cold War when Russia and China restarted their large-scale arms transfer relationship. And that is that most of the systems that Russia has been transferring to China have, have their greatest application in the maritime domain. So therefore, things like uh, warships, long-range uh, air aircraft, um, combat aircraft, anti-ship cruise missile systems, submarines, and the like, they've been significantly affecting China's ability to threaten U.S. forces, especially in the Western Pacific within the first island chain. And they've really helped China, which has incorporated a lot of that technology into its own systems, uh, to continue to expand its own maritime, both strike and defense capabilities, building up its Navy fleet, its own conventional submarine force. 
It's a tactical and strategic bomber force. And uh, that is make, raising the cost for the U.S. of potential incursions into the Western Pacific and how it would potentially respond to those kinds of things. In addition, though, and I think on a, a broader level, we're seeing the constant infusion of Russian arms transfers and uh, technology helping to position China uh, to continue to develop its own indigenous defense base. Uh, China has now already surpassed Russia in producing naval platforms at a very high level, as in, and many of those incorporate weapons that were either transferred from Russia or derived from Russian systems that were previously transferred. Uh, China's uh, missile capabilities, especially in the cruise missile area, has, has received a major boost over the last several years from incorporating Russian technology and, and systems. And their, their submarines fleet especially the Yuan-class submarines, which are their, their leading conventional platform, uh, are derived from Russian technology as well. So China's been quite adept at taking Russian systems and incorporating them straight away into their uh, counter-intervention forces in the maritime domain, but also developing new systems to further that effort. Thanks, Paul. And, and Richard, this is a perfect segue into, into your paper because you have the kit, you need to exercise uh, with it. So I would welcome you sort of again at a high level describing the highlights of, of your paper and particularly what you're seeing to Paul's point in the maritime domain. We obviously have both land component and air component. So let me turn to you and, and, and give us a, a, an overview of your paper. Thank you uh, for having me on and, and let me present the main points of the paper. I would say the one, the interesting fact about the exercises is unlike the other two main baskets of the Russia-China defense cooperation, which I see is one, the arms sales that Paul discussed, and then also their, their interactions through various meetings, the conferences, the renewals, their friendship treaty, uh, which occurred uh, this week. This, the exercises have seen a steady, consistent progression in terms of expanding the types of exercises, their frequency, and arguably their salience. So they started off more than a decade ago with primarily land exercises they would hold every year or two years, and they often would occur within a framework of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the multilateral uh, structure that includes both Russia and China and some Central Asian countries. But in the past, say, eight years or so, they've become much more diverse and frequent. So they now have every year uh, a naval exercise broken into two phases of different parts of the world, often in the Pacific and, and then the European uh, seas. They also, in, in addition to the land and sea exercises, now have begun having strategic aviation exercises. Their uh, strategic uh, bombers have twice overflown the area between Japan and South Korea. They have engaged in uh, command post exercises by computer, simulating defense against uh, air and missile strikes. And these, have, in my view, have served uh, to help supplement and complement the, the other baskets of cooperation. And they've also helped fill the gap that, that there is not a military alliance between Russia and China. 
the have used some of the technology that Russia has transferred to China, as Paul discussed. Um, they've also used some of their indigenous forces. They've used a variety of ships, variety of different types of land forces, often special forces. And as I said, they occurred often, sometimes bilaterally, but sometimes multilaterally. In addition to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they now recently held several naval exercises with a third partner, and twice with Iran, once with South Africa. Um, and I'd argue that these exercises serve multiple functions. Um, they help the two sides uh, reassure each other. They do improve their ability to operate together. So it's an interoperability enhancement drill. It probably helps the arms sales. Russia can show off the assistance it wants the Chinese to purchase. They also send signals to third parties, in some cases, such as the one to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, to the other partners, such as the Central Asian governments, worried about uh, what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, but also, of course, they're signaling to the United States, Japan, and Europe that they have a, you know, a growing or at least a strong defense ties that needs to be taken into account. What we don't quite know is how much is really this and helps their capacity uh, to operate together as opposed to being able to perhaps engage in limited exercises. They're still not as extensive as the ones the United States has, for example, with its NATO partners or Japan and South Korea. But it's something that U.S. and, and allied military planners will need to account for in, in their future thinking about how the Russia-China military partnership will evolve in coming years. Richard, thank you so much. I, I want to drill down a little bit on on the term interoperability because uh, as, as Mike Kaufman has written, sometimes when, when we, the U.S., uh, says interoperability, we think of that and how the U.S. conducts interoperability with our NATO allies. So there's there's absolutely seamless integration where the U.S. is the dominant military partner and our allies sort of plug and play into that type of uh, mode. We're not talking about interoperability of Russian and Chinese forces when they're exercising. And this is what I want some clarity because in some ways, yes, they're practicing together, but is it are they practicing in some ways deconfliction? That the how how they're exercising is uh, with the ability to demonstrate that they can do their own independent action. We're not talking about two military cultures that are so distinct working together, but trying to deconflict. Do I have that right, or you can disavow me of that? Help me understand interoperability as the Russian and Chinese militaries uh, operate and interact through exercises. In their own writings and their descriptions of the drills, they, they say that they're working on interoperability. Uh, they've never said they'll do a joint operation, but you know, that's somewhat implicit in when they use the term. But yes, I think we would characterize it more as deconfliction. So I would say that they now have the capacity, for example, if they wanted to intervene to defend a country neighboring Afghanistan that was a, a, a considered a partner of both um, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, or something, they could probably do it. They would probably separate, do it from separate parts of the country they, and then try and deconflict their operations. But it's also possible they could work together as a joint force, say, on a counter-piracy operation, uh, non-combatant evacuation operation. You could think that in some cases, China might want Russia's help pulling people out of the Middle East, for example, and vice versa, Russian, Russians in some Asian country, or humanitarian operations. 
What we don't see yet is their ability to operate as a joint force against, for example, the United States or its closest military partners. That they would probably do independently, but arguably, I think more likely one country would intervene and the other would just try and exploit the opportunity rather than join in. Uh, Richard, no, I think that's right. And, and Paul, let, let me turn to you. CSAS recently hosted um, a high-level lecture on Russia's evolving capabilities in space, military capabilities in space. And what was clear throughout the conversation, we were talking about Sino-Russian space cooperation, both in the civilian, but potentially as well as in the military dimension of that. So I'm wondering if you could help highlight in the military sale, arms sales, military transfer, what has the component of space, uh, and if, if you'd like to elaborate even in cyber, because we really see the real challenge is, uh, is the cross domain of cyber and space. And then, Richard, I'm going to come to you to see, you know, have they exercised or you seen anything in the space and cyber domain in the exercises that, that you could help um, you know illuminate us on, on how both Russia and China are interacting uh, in that domain? Paul, let me turn to you first. Sure. So Russia and China have a long history of cooperation in space with the Russians uh, responsible largely for um, a lot of the early infusions of space technology that China then built upon to develop their own indigenous space program. And uh, this, this relationship dates back several decades. Most recently, there has been an uptick in space cooperation, but a little bit less on the uh, arms transfer and defense technology transfer area. We do see some developments. For example, recently, Russia and China agreed that Russia will help China to develop a ballistic missile early warning system. And what we're seeing there is that China is engaged Russia to help with um, some upfront design work. Uh, China, of course, wants to lean heavily on Russia's uh, already well-established capabilities in this area, as Russia has been fielding uh, early warning systems uh, for much of the Cold War and post-Cold War era. China lags behind significantly in this area, so they're looking to Russia to help them with designing both the uh, ground segment and the space segment, uh, helping to understand what, what sorts of satellite technology they will need. Uh, it looks like uh, Russia's likely to transfer technology and possible systems as well during later stages, but this project is still in the early stages. Uh, interestingly, though, I will also note that um, a few years back, China had approached Russia to purchase RD-180 rocket engines. And there was a uh, arrangement that was being discussed about a potential swap, Russia providing these engines and China reciprocating by providing ability to um, manufacture advanced uh, integrated circuitry. And that deal ultimately faltered, partly for strategic reasons. I think Russia has been reluctant to transfer that kind of technology to China, but also uh, because Russia found that the electronic circuitry components that China was looking to transfer weren't really capable of meeting its uh, strict specifications for what it needed for its aerospace systems of its own. Thank you, Paul. Richard, are you seeing any, um, you know, obviously uh, integrated air defense capabilities, you know, that combination of cyber and space, are you seeing that in any of their exercising patterns? 
they've never uh, acknowledged engaging in cyber offensive uh, operations at the joint exercise level. They sometimes talk about cyber defenses. They did have these aerospace security 2016 and 2017 drill. These were computer-based command post exercises. The first one in, met in Moscow, the other in Beijing. They were there for a few days. They said they simulated joint air and missile defenses. But the details are really scanty, and they, I mean, they just don't, at least in their publications, they don't talk about it. The one area where I think they also cooperate in a lot of space, though, if I just may add, is, is really in the arms control realm. As you know, they've been pushing these various joint treaties and other and norms and, and so on to try and limit U.S. military activities in space while shielding their own. Um, and so... I see it much more in terms of the, the, the arms control basket than I do in, in terms of the what they're, the technology transfer and especially in the exercises. If they do it, they don't talk about it that much. Well, and I'm so glad, Richard, you highlighting uh, it's not just military, it's also diplomacy and seeing how the two are interacting together. And I think that was a, a really important observation on the on the diplomatic uh, front. So let me let me move to, um, you know, we're obviously we're talking about the opportunities uh, that Sino-Russian military cooperation present. Um, let's talk a little bit about costs. And Paul, I, I, for me, as I look at costs, um, the closer and the more Russia transfers um, arms, military technology to China, it is starting to now disrupt its close military cooperation with India, with Vietnam. You know, what are the what are the costs there? We've also seen actually costs within uh, within the, the Sino-Russian relationship. We had, I believe it was last year, um, an espionage case. Uh, Valerie Mitko uh, was alleged to have uh, given submarine technology to to Beijing. So clearly there's still sensitivity about uh, transferring that uh, that technology. But I would welcome those costs. Some have argued that Russia is becoming in some ways a subcontractor to China. Maybe that's the helicopter example that uh, they are, they, as you noted, they are going to lose their uh, technological edge here potentially. So I welcome sort of just your, your thoughts on the costs of a, a closer Sino-Russian military cooperation. Very good points, Heather. As a matter of fact, uh, Russia has had to do some damage control with both India and Vietnam as a result of its growing strategic partnership and especially its arms transfer relationship with China, uh, which, as mentioned earlier, has ramped up significantly since uh, the Ukraine crisis in 2014. Now, now, India has long been Russia's largest arms client. And given uh, problems between India and China, uh, it would not be surprising that India would be concerned about this. And uh, that has come up in high-level summit discussions between the two countries. And you also see India now, based on its growing concern with China, uh, starting to look to form tighter relationships with um, multi multinational coalitions such as the Quad, uh, forming closer ties with the U.S. and Japan and Australia, for example. And in the arms transfer area, India has uh, been diversifying its ties substantially over recent years buying more arms from, from countries like France and Israel and the U.S. And this has cut deeply into uh, Russia's uh, market share in the Indian market. 
but I would say rumors of the demise of Russia-Indian relations are greatly exaggerated because Russia still maintains the largest share of India's arms market and has continued to to uh, promote those relations by moving up the value chain and offering better weapons, more technology transfer, financing arrangements, and uh, uh, joint development projects. And the fact remains that India has a very large installed base of Russian systems, and it's likely to drive the relationship forward for some years to come. Vietnam is likewise a very large uh, Russian arms client. They, they purchased uh, 6 to $8 billion in weapons over the last a decade and a half, and uh, Vietnam is very concerned about China's incursions in the South China Sea, of course. And so the growing relationship between Russia and China in that area has caused concerns with Vietnam. But Russia's uh, not inclined to pick and choose uh, its arms clients and has uh, uh, given assurances to Vietnam that it will um, continue to support it. And despite overtures from the U.S. to um, open up arms trade with Vietnam, uh, Hanoi continues to look to Russia for, for the bulk of its arms. And finally, a word about the uh, growing costs for Russia itself from the bilateral transfers to China. Uh, there are indeed costs as uh, China continues to be more and more self-sufficient incorporating Russian technology, which uh, Russia has been forced to uh, transfer more more of its underlying technology as arms sales have taken more of a, of a secondary role in that relationship. We're seeing China being able to to purchase fewer and fewer systems from Russia and uh, to start to produce its own series of weapons and offering them on the, the global arms markets. So those two things present significant challenges for Russia, which is heavily dependent on global arms sales for both revenue for its defense industry and to uh, to finance its ongoing R&D efforts. So there are um, real challenges ahead, I think, for Russia and uh, in managing and balancing this relationship. Paul, just a very, very brief follow-up. So uh, what we are seeing though is uh, Chinese arms sales are, are still fairly on the low end. They're not necessarily challenging Russian arms sales at the higher end, but your sense is we're holding that position now, but that would not be in the future that China may certainly challenge Russian arms sales at the higher end. I think so. And I think that's uh, almost inevitable as uh, China becomes increasingly capable of producing competitive weapon systems, they will move up the uh, value chain and start uh, offering these systems to uh, more middle, mid-tier and advanced countries. We're already seeing that to some extent. And China already has certain areas where they're uh, well ahead of Russia, and that's production of large naval platforms, which so far uh, has not been a, a source of significant arms revenue for China. But I think we could see that uh, change uh, over time as uh, China becomes more integrated in global arms uh, transactions. Richard, let me turn to you. Uh, wh- where do you see the costs uh, here for, for Russia in greater Sino-Russian military cooperation? Uh, and then I have to ask, because we're, we're, we're now focusing our attention on the upcoming Russian annual military um, exercise in their Western military district, Zapad. Uh, and of course, we've seen since 2018 uh, the Chinese military has been incorporated in the annual military exercise. Just wondering if you're thinking that there may be some Chinese participation in, in Zafad. Uh, so I would welcome your, your thoughts on that as well. So far, the costs have been minimal, if any, um, primarily because, as you know, since you were involved in this when you were in government, Russia 
used to have some exercises with the United States and its allies and, and China as, as well with, with the uh, U.S. and other navies. But all those have all um, pretty much ended for reasons that are well known. So lacking opportunities to exercise with more advanced Western militaries, they're exercising together uh, seems be the best they can do. There's there's no real cost. They presumably I think that by working together in this and other areas, it gives them leverage with the United States. I, I agree with Paul that the the Russians have been very careful to indicate to their other partners, India and so on, that the exercises with China are not exclusive. They Russians continue their exercise program with India uh, and and other partners. The strength of the Russia-China partnership in one way is that they've been pretty tolerant of the others dealing with countries of concern to, to them. So the Russians have not visibly impeded China in the Ukraine cooperation, except perhaps, and Paul might know this better, in the arms sales, where I think the Russians were concerned at, at, at various points that the the Chinese were getting around Russian export controls by buying equivalent systems from Ukraine. But of course, that's, that's not, not recently been a problem. And, and the Russians and the Chinese have not objected, as far as we know, to the Russia-India, Russia-Vietnamese partnerships in, in, in many areas, including defense. Russians have not been successful in what they would really love to do, which is bring Russia, China, and India together in alignment. Uh, this, as you know, has been a dream of Russian foreign policy for years. They've tried to do it also in the military realm with joint exercises, but the Indians have refused. Uh, in the future, this, this may become more of a, of a challenge for their management. But for now, it seems to me that these exercises are pretty cost-free. And the, Paul mentioned an important point about the naval platforms. There was some speculation that the Chinese at some point are hoping to sell some of the ships that they're showing off to the Russians in, in the joint exercises to the Russians. Um, so that's something else to look forward uh, for to. The question of Chinese participation in the upcoming Zapad strategic exercise is a really good one. As Chinese have participated, I believe, in the last three exercises, and as you know, Russia rotates these exercises among its four main military uh, areas uh, in that east, west, north, and south. They've done the other three. That could be a cost for both of them, though. If the Chinese participate and you have China, PLA, ground forces, air forces, and engaging in the military activities in Belarus and, and so on, I would think that would uh, cause them, uh, make it much more difficult for them to prevent NATO from seeing both of them as a, as a military threat and, and continuing the drive that we've seen some success in in, in recent U.S. administrations. They're getting the Europeans to help the U.S. deal with China as well as Russia, including in the military realm. No, thank Richard. Uh, Paul, let me just, if you want to briefly comment on, on, on Richard's uh, statement, I will say just on China-Ukraine, uh, because we follow the Arctic so closely, and the Zhui Long, the China's first icebreaker, was a retrofitted Ukrainian icebreaker. So there, it goes the other way. But Paul, let me allow you to comment before I come in with our last question. That is correct, that uh, Ukraine has been an important source of uh, military technology for China uh, for, for quite some time, though. 
um, and it's still an uh, a still a, a linkage that uh, continues to to this day. But I think uh, before the Ukraine crisis, Ukraine itself exported a variety of systems to China. In some cases, preempting potential Russian Chinese arms transfers. And I'm speaking here of, for example, the Sukhoi 33 fighter which uh, China tried to buy from Russia for arming its own aircraft carriers after failing to reach agreement on that, and partly because of its availability from Ukraine. Uh, China ended up getting a copy from Ukraine and then uh, building its own airplane for its uh, carrier base forces. And so this has uh, been a, a constant thorn in the side of uh, Ukrainian-Russian relations. Uh, but since the Ukraine crisis was with the major implications for uh, Ukraine's own defense industry, that has uh, declined to some extent. So let me ask you as our final question, um, you know, the, the Chinese and Russians have, have declared this a strategic cooperation and comprehensive partnership as they describe their, uh, their growing uh, military ties. But for what purpose? And I think that's where we, we're really going to put our analytical hats on here. You know, as Richard, you mentioned, some of this is diplomacy and political signaling, whether that's at the UN, on the arms control uh, agenda, certainly as it relates to, to space, um, you know, uh, doing joint air exercises where they're both uh, entering the air defense identification zone of South Korea and, you know, the, the component in the Western Pacific. I would argue that if, in fact, we see uh, the Chinese military engaged in Zapad, uh, that that's a lot of political signaling, too, that um, both are again, mutually aiding one another in their areas of interest, whether that's in the Western Pacific or uh, in Europe. So I would I would really welcome, and, and Richard, I'll, I'll begin with you. What is the purpose of these growing ties? Is it two-front confrontation, simultaneous confrontation to deny the U.S. Um, capabilities? The, we argue that's certainly their, one of their points of their space cooperation. What is purpose here? Richard, over to you. I think there are probably multiple purposes at work, and they're all, most of them are striving in the same direction, so it's hard to tangle out the various uh, conflated variables. But part of it is mutual concern about the United States and wanting to signal to the United States that the other may come to be able to support one country if it gets into a conflict with the United States. Uh, I think it's also signaling to their other partners uh, and potential adversaries what that they have some ties. It also seems to be driven just by a PLA desire to learn how modern military works. As you know, the China is not engaged in a conventional military conflict since the Vietnam incursion in 1979, and really not since the Korean War has been in a major uh, confrontation. So the Chinese has a great military and paper, and it's looking more and more impressive. But we just don't know how well it would actually perform in a in a in a, in a genuine combat operation. And by exercising with the Russians, learning what the Russians have been doing in Syria and so on, it, it, I think it gives the PLA certain insights that they're have to to get. Uh, they wish they could get from the Pacific fleet, but lacking that, they'll they'll get from the Russians as well. Um, for Russia, it's a, lot, a, a good revenue source in terms of the arms sales, good diplomacy. I, I think that as long as uh, President Putin is in charge of Russia, they're going to stay very firmly committed to the China alignment. He 
Lee and his team described that as one of the major achievements of, of Russian foreign policy in the past decade, along with the quote-unquote recovery of Crimea. And so it's hard for me to see that being reversed. There are probably domestic interests at work in both countries that are favoring this, but there are probably some domestic ones that are worried about being the, the alienation from the West. We just don't, they're not as vocal, at least in public, so it's harder for us to tell that. But for me, they, you know, since they're also flexible about allowing the other country to have partners with, with third parties that may even be in conflict with one of them, such as Ukraine or Vietnam or India, it seems to me it's a, a low-cost, moderately beneficial relationship from the point of view of both leaders. And there's not anything better on offer, and there's no real cost doing this, and at least in the near term. So I think all these factors are, are making this a very durable and flexible relationship that we in, the, in, in Washington and the West more broadly are going to have to take into account. Thank you, Richard. Paul, you have the last word. Okay, I agree with uh, Richard. Arms trade relationship itself is benefits both parties. China gets arms that help it fill capability gaps, and Russia gets revenue important for its defense industry. At the same time, Russia's uh, continuing uh, transfer of military arms and technology to China has helped China build up its maritime capabilities. And it helps to keep China focused primarily on its uh, growing competition with the West and away from Russia, allowing Russia to free up to focus on uh, Europe and the Middle East. And their uh, border area is uh, still very much a demilitarized one. At the same time, there's no real sense that this is going to develop into a true military alliance anytime soon with mutual defense commitments, primarily because both countries, neither country really needs the other to defend its most fundamental security interest. China, and, and in some senses, neither could really contribute all that much to a, a fight in the other country's uh, principal area of potential conflict. China, for example, doesn't really have a, pres a military presence in Europe or the ability to project significant power there, for example. On a strategic level, both need each other as a partner. These are countries that are heavily autarkic and heavily self-sufficient and biased towards doing that. But with the rise of the unipolar moment, uh, it became much more important for the two to collaborate and put up a common front on a number of issues to try to, to limit and contain U.S. power, which they both felt was an important strategic goal. And signaling, of course, is a, is a big part of this. Uh, the two continuously play up their military ties and their growing strategic partnership. And uh, that's become a source of great concern for the U.S. and countries around the, the globe. And it, it helps, at a, as, a, as Richard said, a low-cost way uh, to promote their image and their strategic objectives. Paul, Richard, thank you so much. I mean, I'll end where I began. I mean, the issue of Sino-Russian cooperation, military cooperation, is really the, the most significant strategic conundrum, I think, for the U.S. national security community. And I, I think as, as your papers illustrate, um, as our conversation here has illustrated, that this is a, a flexible, mutually beneficial alignment. It has costs. 
It has challenges for sure, but it has purpose as you've described. And the fact that it will be more durable really requires us to understand it to where it is evolving, how it is mutually benefiting both powers. So thank you both so much for this rich discussion, as well as for your your papers, which really provide uh, a level of clarity and detail that I think has been missing from a lot of the discourse on this subject. So thank you both uh, so much. And as always, thank you to our listeners for, for joining us. That's it for our show today. There are links to Richard and Paul's bios in our show notes, as well as their papers. And of course, we want to thank U.S. European Command's Russia Strategic Initiative for supporting both the papers and this podcast episode. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and are leaving us a rating or a review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. Finally, I'd like to thank everyone who always works so hard to make this podcast happen. And of course, including our fantastic producer, program manager, Roxana Gabrielina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Have a great summer. Thanks for listening.